You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. Join us now for Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. When I think of great voices, I think of Bishop Sheen. And it was his voice that touched the hearts of millions of souls through his radio addresses and his television programs. And we'd like to share a few of those reflections with you today. So I would invite you to sit back and relax and enjoy the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to another episode of Bishop Sheen Presents. I thought I would share with you today some recordings from 19. 19- 48, and uh, these are from the Catholic Hour, uh, where at the time, Monsignor Sheen was giving a number of powerful weekly addresses. And so he gave an address at the beginning of 1948, and it's simply entitled, The Basis of Our Anxieties. And I think you're going to see a lot of similarities uh, from what he's sharing back in 1948. Uh, to today. And so, um, again, you will see how when saints speak, uh, their wisdom is timeless. And so, uh, again, I think you're going to enjoy that very much today. And I'll do a second um, recording from his Catholic Hour productions, uh, also from the year 1948. And the talk that uh, Monsignor Sheen is giving is simply entitled, Is God Hard to Find? And I think we can ask that same question today, is God hard to find? So uh, here, again, going back to the beginning of 1948, these reflections, and here we're in the beginnings of 2021. So I think you'll see some beautiful uh, similarities. And I say beautiful in the sense of, you know, Monsignor Sheem was giving people uh, not only an understanding of what was going on in the world and in the human heart, but also what we needed, and he provided solutions. So again, uh, please stay tuned and enjoy the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. Friends, in last Sunday's broadcast, we said that if the modern soul wishes to go to God through the inner self, instead of from nature, that the Christian apologist ought to take him on that road. Today we begin with the fact that one of psychology's favorite descriptions of modern man is that he has an anxiety complex. Psychology is more right than it suspects, and for a more profound reason than it knows. There is no doubt that an increasing number of persons today are afflicted with psychoses, neuroses, complex complexes, fears, anxieties, irritabilities, and ulcers. 
But modern anxiety is quite different from the anxiety of previous and more normal ages in two ways. In other days, men were anxious about their souls. But modern anxiety is concerned principally with the body. The major worries today are economic security, health, complexion, wealth, social prestige, and biological energies. To read modern advertisements, one would think that the greatest calamity that could befall a human being would be either to have dishpan hands or to have a cough in the T-zone. This overemphasis on corporal security is not healthy and has begotten a generation that is much more concerned about having life belts to wear on a sea journey than about the cabin it will occupy and enjoy. And the second characteristic of modern anxiety is that its fears are not objective, but subjective. Fear of objective natural dangers, such as lightning, beasts, and famine, is normal. Fear of objective dangers is always part of the human nature. But a subjective anticipated fear of what one believes would be dangerous if it happened is abnormal. Such persons with anxieties become like fish caught in nets and birds trapped in the snare, increasing their own entanglements by the fierceness of their disorderly exertions to overcome them. Modern psychologists have done an admirable service in studying anxieties, both on the level of consciousness and unconsciousness. But anxiety is deeper than they believe, for it appears on all the levels of life. Anxiety may take on new forms in our disordered civilization, but anxiety has always been rooted in the nature of man. There never has been a human being in the history of the world without an anxiety complex. Because anxiety has always existed, we want to find the basic reason for it. The permanent ground of all restlessness, of which the psychological is only a superficial manifestation. The basic reason of all anxiety is due to the fact that man is a composite of body and soul. Standing midway between the animal and the angel, living in a finite world and aspiring toward the infinite, moving in time and seeking the eternal, he is pulled at one moment toward the pleasures of the body and at another moment toward the joys of the spirit. That is why he is anxious. He is in a constant state of suspension between matter and spirit. He may be likened to a mountain climber who aspires to the great peak above. And yet, looking back from his present position, fears falling to the abyss below. This example of the mountain climber, however, is not exact, for he has no helper on the upper peak to which he aspires. Man, however, has.
where God on the upper peak of eternity reaches out his omnipotent hand to lift man up even before man raises his voice in plea. It is evident then that even though we escaped all of the anxieties of modern economic life, even though we avoided all of the tensions which psychology finds in consciousness and unconsciousness, we would still have that great basic anxiety that is born of our creatureliness. Anxiety stems fundamentally from irregulated desires from the creature wanting something that is unnecessary for him or contrary to his nature or positively harmful to his soul. Anxiety increases in direct ratio and proportion as man departs from God. In plain, simple language, every man in the world has an anxiety complex because he has a capacity to be either a sinner or a saint. Let no one ever tell you that your anxiety comes from the fact that your unconscious mind still bears traces of your animal origin. This is untrue, simply because animals left to themselves never have anxieties. They have natural fears which are good, but no subjective anxiety such as man, unless their frustration is deliberately induced in them by the perverse intelligence of man making experiments. No fox has an anxiety complex about his lair being deeper than that of the Jones fox. Nor do robins ever develop a psychosis about whether they will take a trip for the winter to California or to Florida. An animal can never be less than it is, but a man can, because a man is a composite of spirit and matter. When we see a monkey acting foolishly, we do not say, do not act like a nut. But when we see a man acting foolishly, we do say, do not act like a monkey. Because a man is a spirit as well as matter, he can descend to the level of the beasts. But not so completely as to destroy the image of God in his soul. It is this that makes the peculiar tragedy of man. Crows have no psychoses. Pigs have no neuroses. Chickens are never frustrated. And neither would man ever be frustrated, nor would he have an anxiety complex, nor a despair, if he were only an animal made for this world. It takes eternity to make a man despair. An animal can have only a sick body, but not a sick soul. A psychology which denies the soul is therefore constantly contradicting itself. It calls man an animal and then proceeds to describe in man an anxiety which no animal has because no animal has a rational soul. Now since the basic cause of man's anxiety is the possibility of being either 
a saint or a sinner, it follows that there are only two alternatives. Man can either mount upwards to the peak of eternity or else slip backwards to the chasms of despair and frustration. I know there are some who think there is another alternative, namely indifference. They think that just as bears hibernate for a season in a state of animated suspension, so they can sleep through life without choosing for God or against him. But this is no escape, not only because winter ends and one is forced to make a decision, but because indifference itself is a decision. White fences do not remain white fences by doing nothing to them. They soon become black fences. But the mere fact that we do not go forward, we go backward. There are no planes in the spiritual life. We are either going uphill or coming down. And furthermore, the attitude of indifference is only mental. Though a soul does not positively reject the infinite, the infinite rejects him. The talents that are unused are taken away. And God speaks in the scriptures to the broad-minded, indifferent soul, saying, Because thou art lukewarm, and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit thee from my mouth. Returning now to the supreme alternatives, how resolve this basic anxiety of life? Either man can make the soul subject to the body or the body subject to the soul. Consider those who resolve the anxiety in favor of godlessness they invariably end by substituting a false god for the true god of love. Now this false god can take on three forms. If the god is one's ego, that is the sin of pride. If the god is flesh, that is the sin of lust. If the god is things, that is the sin of avarice. Pride, lust, avarice, the devil, the flesh, and the world. These constitute the new unholy trinity by which man is wooed away from the holy trinity and from the discovery of the goal of life. Now you understand why to compensate for those sins there exists in religion the vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Anxiety and frustration invariably follow when the desires of the heart are centered on any one of these or anything less than God. For then all the pleasures of earth turn out to be the opposite of what was expected. The expectation is joyous the realization is disgust. 
Certainly you want to go through life being something else than a contented cow. Consider now that other alternative which overcomes the basic anxiety of life by an act of abandonment in which the body is disciplined and made subject to the spirit and the whole personality is directed to God. If you are interested in enjoying this inner peace, there are three ways to acquire it. First, control your desires. All anxieties and frustrations are due to uncontrolled desires. When a soul does not get what it wants, it falls into sadness and distress. One of the greatest deceptions is the belief that leisure and money are the two essentials of happiness. The sad fact of life is that there are no more frustrated people on the face of the earth than those who have nothing to do and those who have too much money for their own good. Work never killed anybody. But worry does. And to conquer anxiety does not mean eliminating desires, but rather arranging them in a kind of hierarchy, as our Lord reminded us in saying that life is more than the raiment. Now this implies not only a renunciation of what is evil, but even a voluntary deprivation of some things that are lawful, in order that the spirit is made free to mount to God. When the sacrifices of our Lord become the inspiration of controlled desires, then the burdens of life are borne not only with renunciation, but are even accepted as providential calls to greater intimacy with him. And secondly, you can overcome your psychic anxieties by transferring concern from your body to your soul. There are two kinds of anxieties, one about time, the other about eternity. Most people are anxious about those very things they should not be anxious about. Our divine Lord in the gospel mentioned at least nine things that we should not worry about. And these are the nine anxieties which keep most people in a state of unrest. The nine anxieties our blessed Lord told us not to worry about were these. Having your body killed. About what you will say in days of persecution when you were called on the carpet before commissars. About whether you should build another barn or another skyscraper. About family disputes because you accept the faith. About mother-in-law troubles. About your meals. Your drinks your fashions, your complexion. But he did tell us that we should be very anxious about one thing and one thing only, our soul. Our Lord does not mean that worldly anxieties are unnecessary. He only said that if we are anxious about our souls, the lesser anxieties would dissolve. Seek ye first he said. Note he did not say not only, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his justice, and all these things shall be added unto you. Every human being must love the perfect 
or else he will go crazy. Because no man is sufficient unto himself. The third way to overcome your anxieties is to trust in God. Love is reciprocal. It is received in proportion as it is given. That is why there is a special providence for those who trust in God. Contrast to children. One child in a happy family who is well provided for in the way of food, clothing, and education. The other a homeless orphan of the street. The first child lives in an area of love. The second is outside of that area and therefore enjoys none of the privileges. Many souls deliberately choose to exclude themselves from that area of the Heavenly Father's love where they might live as his children. They trust only in their own resources, their own bank account, their own devices. They are very much like a son who in time of need never called on his wealthy father for assistance. The result is they lose many of the blessings of those who are relieved from anxieties by thrusting themselves into the loving arms of God. Many favors and blessings are hanging from heaven to relieve our temporal anxieties if we did but cut them down with the sword of our trust in God. And relief from anxiety comes not from giving ourselves to God by halves, but by an all-compassing love, wherein we go back not to our past in fear, not to the future in anxiety, but lie quiet in his hand, having no will but his own. Then the shadows of life are seen, as the poet says, as the shade of his hand outstretched caressingly. Take a resolution then to make a holy hour a day in meditation. If you are a Catholic, do it in the presence of our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. Remember that your unconscious mind is disturbed because your final purpose of life is not yet decided. And during that hour of meditation, decide why you are living where you are going, and then you won't have anxieties in your unconscious mind. If there were anywhere on earth a resting place other than God, you may be sure that your soul in its long history would have found it out before this. As St. Augustine said, our hearts were made for thee, and they are restless until they rest in thee, O God. Why stand ye then at the gate of indecision? Has your heart lost its wings? While each plant makes haste to make good the promise of the bud, hear ye the Savior's question, why are you anxious? Tis God who woos your anxious, restless heart. And if you have an anxiety complex, it is because you are not yet divinely embraced. Tis want of courage not to yield. Be not death's prey before you be love's prize. Let the fortress of thyself be taken 
and then your ego being undone, you will be an uncaught captive in the hands of love. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, my good friends, and welcome once again to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. And I pray that you enjoyed that first reflection entitled The Basis of Our Anxieties. And uh, you can see how, uh, at the time, Monsignor Sheen was reaching an audience of close to 4 million people each week, and uh, how so many would have been talking about his reflection the following day and hopefully for weeks to come. Uh, But there was a lot of good content there, and I'd ask you to share it with some friends and family members and uh, to also share it on your social media. Uh, We will now, uh, again, enjoy a second reflection, uh, also from his 1948 uh, series of the Catholic Hour Talks. And uh, this talk is entitled, Is God Hard to Find?, And I think it will fit in nicely with what so many people are experiencing. Uh, They're always looking for God, and where can we find him? So, uh, again, uh, Monsignor Sheen will give us the answer. Please enjoy. Friends, our three preceding broadcasts have stressed the idea that modern man locked inside of his own mind cannot find peace except through redemption from sin. That brings up today's problem. Is the God who is a savior hard to find? God is not hard to find. He is the most obvious fact of human experience. He can be found either through the beauty of the stars or through the aspirations of a heart which, like a seashell, speak of the ocean of divinity. Why is it, then, that so few souls come to him? The fault is on our side, not God's. Most souls are like a man living in a dark room during the daytime, complaining that the light is hard to find. All they would have to do to discover the light would be to open the blinds. If we are not aware of him, it is because we are too complicated, or because our noses are lifted high in the air in pride. For lo, he is at our very feet. We need only to turn a stone to start a wing. The grace of God comes to man in just the degree that man opens his soul. The only limit to man's capacity to receive him is man's willingness to do so. Some hearts open up only a little crevice, and others with complete abandon surrender their empty cisterns to be filled with the waters of eternal life. Many souls are unhappy because locked up with their anxieties, frustrations, and fears, they refuse to open the door and let in the refreshing air of God's grace. God knocks at the door of our soul. The latch, however, is on our side, and not on God's side. 
and God breaks down no doors. The tragedy of sin is not so much that we do wrong, but that we will not let God help us do what is right. We smash the bow so that he cannot play on the violin. We keep him at arm's length because we refuse to be loved. The God Savior is not hard to find, but rather we are afraid of being found. I believe there are three principal reasons which keep us from a Savior. First, we want to be saved, but not from our sins. Secondly, we want to be saved, but not at too great a cost. And finally, we want to be saved in our way, not in God's way. First, we want to be saved, but not from our sins. We are willing to be saved from poverty, from war, from ignorance, from disease, from economic insecurity, for such types of salvation leave the individual whims and passions and sins untouched. This is one of the reasons why social Christianity is so very popular. For by concentrating on slum clearance and international unity, the individual conscience is left untouched and unpurified. These individuals think that by making other people good, they dispense themselves from the need of giving up their own sins. At the average dinner table, men do not object to the subject of religion being introduced in conversation, provided religion has nothing to do with the purging of a conscience. Thus do souls stand trembling at the gate of bliss and dare not venture in fearful lest having him, they have naught else beside. And the second reason why we do not find a savior is because we want to be saved, but not at too great a cost. The God who dungs his fields with sacrifice in order to bring forth the vine of life frightens us. Most souls are afraid of God precisely because of his goodness. And God's goodness is dissatisfied with anything that is imperfect. Our greatest tragedy is not that God may not love us enough, but that he may love us too much. As the lover wants to see his beloved perfect in manner and refinement, so too God, loving us, desires that we be perfect, for this is our happiness. As the musician loves the violin tightens the strings with sacrificial strain that they may give forth a better tone, so God submits us to sacrifice to make us saints. There are many who like to hear the sound of their knuckles as they knock at the door of truth, but they would drop dead if the door ever opened to them, because truth implies responsibility. Because accepting a savior demands a surrender and the dethronement of false ideals of the heart, many become bargain hunters in religion and dilettantes in morality. They want to be saved, but not at too great a cost, not at the price of a cross. So there echoes through their lives
the challenge of old. Come down from your cross and we will believe. And the third reason we do not come to a divine savior is because we want to be saved, but in our way, not in God's way. Very often one hears it said that one ought to be free to worship God each in his own way. Now this indeed is true, inasmuch as it implies that freedom of conscience and living up to the lights that God has given to each of us is right and proper. But the statement can be very wrong if it means that we worship God in our way and not in God's way. What would happen to our traffic problem if we said that the American way of life allowed every man to drive in traffic in his way and not in the law's way? Or if patients began saying to their doctors, I want to be cured in my way, not yours. There's a tremendous amount of egotism and conceit in those popular articles and lectures entitled My Idea of Religion or My Idea of God. An individual religion can be just as stupid as an individual astronomy or an individual mathematics. Individuals who say, I will serve God in my way and you serve God in your way ought to inquire whether or not it would be advisable to serve God in his way. And this is precisely what frightens the modern soul. For the conscience of the modern man is uneasy. When he is in sin, he wants a religion that leaves out hell. If he is already married again against the law of Christ, he wants a religion that does not condemn divorce. They want to be saved, all right, but not in God's way, in theirs. And thus refusing to molt all of their vain desires, they miss the flight to that love that leaves all other beauty pain. And the souls who for any one of these three reasons turn their backs on the Savior are not happy. No godless man is happy. He's not happy any more than is a sightless eye or a deaf ear. For as the eye was made for beauty and the ear was made for harmony, so the soul was made for perfect life and truth and love, which is God. Now let us direct our attention to those God-responsive souls who repose in a Savior as the very heart of their existence. Many joys follow from such a union. Now among these benefits, we will mention three. First, in true sanctity, you will pass from a state of speculation to submission. There's a world of difference between knowing about God through study and knowing God through love, as there is a world of difference between a courtship carried on by mail and by direct contact. There are many professors in universities who know the proofs of the existence of God better than some people who say their prayers. 
but because the professors never love the God whom they know by study, no new knowledge of God is ever given to them. They like to talk about religion, but they do nothing about it. And for that reason, no new horizons are open to them. The woman at the well wanted to keep religion on a purely speculative level, so she raised the question as to whether one ought to worship in Jerusalem or Samaria. And our blessed Lord took the discussion out of the realm of theory by reminding her about her five husbands, thus suggesting that her love of the theoretical side of religion was an escape. She was trying to avoid the moral amendments which submission to God requires. The God-responsive soul does not want to water down the gospel to suit his weakness. Rather, such a soul seeks to identify itself with divine love, and that is why religion primarily consists in submission to the will of God. You who love God, pray not that the infinite may satisfy your finite interests, but that your finite interests may serve the infinite. You do not want to use God. You want God to use you. And like John the Baptist, you say, I must decrease. He must increase. St. Teresa said, God does not give himself entirely to us until we give ourselves entirely to him. And once you do that, you will find that you will never again be disappointed. Cheerfulness will reign, for all the while you will think of yourself as clay in the hands of the divine potter who is forming you into a vessel of election, and you will have only one prayer on your lips. Not my will, but thine be done, O Lord. There is a second benefit, too, that will accrue to you if you accept your Savior. Your life will move from circumference to center. By this I mean you will be less upset by the externals of life. The more you lean on the externals of life, the more they can disturb you. A rainy day, a disappointment, a soap opera can spoil your disposition. But the more you lean on an interior life, the more God is the center of things, the more you seek to do his will. And then nothing distracts you, nothing upsets you. Unreality then becomes that which cannot be used or is not used for God's purposes. There will be no arrow in the quiver of your soul for anything but the divine target. Of course, your friends will make fun of you if you love God that much. And they will do it to cover up their own self-reproach. They will say of you that your love reminds them of romantic love. And very often in romantic love, you have heard people say, I cannot understand what he sees in her. Of course not. 
For love is blind. It is blind not only to the defects in the beloved, it is blind to all else save the beloved. Love has its own eyes. All others but the lover see only with the eyes of the body and wonder what there is to love. But the lover sees through the eyes of the heart and finds in another a sweetness and a love that blind hearts do not perceive. Lift this analogy to the divine level and you understand why the unconverted souls think that divine love is foolishness. They cannot understand what a man can see in God. As St. Paul said, the animal man discerneth not, but be not deterred from your resolve that God is everything and what is not God is nothing. To the eyes and ears of the world, it would seem that a national broadcast such as this, appealing to souls to love God more, is the cause of many souls turning to God. That is not true. To the eyes of faith and to my own, I confess no illusion. Some good soul who at the moment of this broadcast, instead of listening to me, is saying a rosary, is doing more good for the world than all of the broadcasts, which are only broadcasts, or those born of equal prayer. It is the centered souls that affect the world. And that is why we ask you each week to make a holy hour of meditation and reparation a day. Try it this week. See how happy you will be. Only the God-centered souls can help the souls on the circumference, and only they have the power to do so, because they are in touch with God. What matters the length of the water pipe unless there is a reservoir of water at the other end? And finally, by accepting a Savior, you will find that you are governed not so much by your own habits of goodness of the natural order, or even by virtues, as you will be moved directly by the Holy Spirit of God. There's a difference between a man rowing a boat and the same man being driven by a sail full of wind. And in like manner, the soul that lives by the gifts of the Spirit of God is moved directly by God rather than by his own reason. That is why such souls have a wisdom which far surpasses all book learning, as was the case of the young girl Catherine of Alexandria, who confounded the philosophers. If you are governed by the Holy Spirit, you will be endowed with a prudence and a counsel which is wiser than that derived from experience. Every mind you see has two sides. It has a speculative side which knows theory, and a practical side which directs and guides. A sinful life does not destroy the intellect which is concerned with theory. That is why an evil man can be just as good a mathematician as a saint. But an evil life does ruin the practical intellect. 
That is why when a learned but evil mathematician turns to writing on morals and religion, he can be a bundle of confusion. If you are a God-directed person, you will be capable of guiding and directing others far better than those who have more knowledge in a purely theoretical fashion. That, incidentally, is why you should be very careful in seeking guidance. The divorce cannot guide the married. And the teacher or the psychologist whose heart is unpurified cannot guide the young. As our Lord said, if the blind lead the blind, both fall into the pit. On the contrary, once you surrender to God, you will find you have a soul within a soul, a mind within a mind, a teacher within your reason. You will be inspired, not as apostles and prophets were inspired, but inspired to the extent that God speaks to you in your soul, and when love speaks, what else remains to be desired? So in conclusion, then the problem of whether or not we can find God is to be placed solely on our side. I think that what is wanting is our own will. So many failures in life are avoidable and needless. They could be remedied. Just as men today do not want war, but they want the things that cause war, so there are many who want to be happy, but they refuse to want that which will bring them happiness. Ever since the days of Adam, man has been hiding from God and saying, God is hard to find. The truth of the matter is, then in each heart there is a secret garden which God made uniquely for himself. And that garden is like a safety deposit vault inasmuch as it has two keys. God has one key, hence the soul cannot let anyone else in but God. The human heart has the other key. Hence not even God can get in without man's consent. And when the two keys of God's love and human liberty meet, then God walks once more in the garden of a human heart. God is always at that garden gate with his key. We pretend to look for ours, saying we cannot find it, but all the while it is in our hand did we but see it. The reason we are not happy is because we do not want God. As Leon Blois said, there is only one sadness in life, the sadness of not being a saint. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program. Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Hello, my good friends and dear Radio Maria family. I want to uh, thank you for joining me today to listen to a few of the classic recordings of uh, the then Monsignor Sheen uh, giving these radio addresses on his Catholic Hour program. And I'm amazed at the wisdom of this man and how, even though those words were from 1948, uh, it is like it is he is speaking to us today. And uh, I think when I started a website many years ago, I had to come up with a name that uh, just seemed to suit the bill. And so I called it BishopSheenToday.com because we need Bishop Sheen today. 
And it's uh, as simple as that. And uh, this labor of love that we put together many years ago is pretty well a collection of everything you can find on the internet uh, that features the uh, audio or video recordings of Sheen's uh, many television years and his radio years. Uh, it's all there on the website, bishopsheentoday.com. And uh, there's a section there that contains uh, many YouTube videos that uh, go through his television shows in the 50s and the 1960s. Uh, my programs here from Radio Maria uh, since 2012, uh, they are archived on the uh, website also. So if you want to listen to close to 400 recordings that we've um, done here at Radio Maria, uh, you can uh, again log in and um, enjoy hours and hours of Sheen's wisdom. And we also have uh, what we call a reading section where uh, many of Sheen's books are uh, in a digital format where uh, there's many uh, digital libraries. Uh, a lot of the universities have these books scanned and you can read uh, the books at your convenience. So uh, there's dozens and dozens of Sheen books that are um, digitized, if that's the right term to use. And you can sit and uh, enjoy uh, many of these hard-to-find books uh, that have been scanned. So uh, it's all there at bishopsheentoday.com. And uh, again, it's uh, at a price that I think we all can afford, and it is free. And uh, so uh, my friend says, oh, it's free 99, but uh, it's really free. So uh, again, just uh, if you haven't visited us yet, please do so. Uh, bishopsheentoday.com. And uh, my web designer says that over a million people each year visit the website. Uh, because again, Bishop Sheen has a worldwide audience and uh, people are looking for help. And um, Sheen helped people week in and week out, not just in America, but all over the world. And he was the uh, executive director of the Pontifical Mission Society, which many people know as the Propagation of the Faith. And for 16 years, he held that office and uh, was busy raising money and awareness uh, for the poor and marginalized of the world. And he, of course, wanted to share the faith uh, with them. And uh, speaking of sharing the faith, I would ask your uh, prayerful support for a project I'm involved with. And that is uh, my third uh, Bishop Sheen book. I've been... Uh, of course, blessed to have put out two uh, titles already uh, with Sophia Institute Press. Uh, the first book that uh, we published was, uh, again, The Cries of Jesus from the Cross, and it was a collection of uh, Fulton Sheen's writings on the seven last words. And uh, we're getting up to uh, 20,000 copies that have been shared uh, over the last year and a bit. And so uh, we're very happy with uh, people wanting to uh, have this in their personal collection because uh, we all need a good book on the cross. And, um, you know, what do we read in scriptures that, you know, we need to preach Christ and him crucified. And when we preach Christ and him crucified, hearts are touched. Uh, people realize, wow, the Lord laid down his life for me that he came into this world to die to save my soul 
and the soul of every man and woman in the world. So uh, again, this collection of Sheen's writings on the seven last words is absolutely beautiful. So uh, make that uh, one of your New Year's resolutions to uh, purchase a copy of The Cries of Jesus from the Cross. Now, the second book that I put together was simply entitled Lord Teach Us to Pray, and it's a collection of Archbishop Sheen's writings on prayer. And in the book, uh, there is beautiful meditations on the Our Father, the Mass, the Holy Hour, Stations of the Cross, and meditations on the Eucharist and the Blessed Virgin Mary. So, a beautiful book to have with you, uh, especially if you um, are looking for some, what I like to say, those pithy little sayings, those short uh, one-liners that just uh, lift your heart. Uh, Sheen, of course, uh, penned many of those. So, again, that book's called Lord, Teach Us to Pray. And uh, again, it's doing very well. But I'm going to release uh, a a collection of Sheen's writings on uh, the sacraments and marriage. And, um, you know, we are sacramental people. And so uh, we need that wisdom that Sheen has on the sacraments. So uh, he wrote a book in 1962 called These Are the Sacraments. And in 1951, he wrote a book called Three to Get Married. And we want to put those two together and release them uh, in the year 2021. So I ask you to pray for that project. And again, thank you for all of your prayerful and financial support uh, here at Radio Maria Canada. So everyone, have a blessed week, and uh, we look forward to seeing you again next time. And so we'd ask you to spread the word of, uh, again, Bishop Sheen Presents, and you'll find us on all the social media, such as iTunes and uh, Podbean, and uh, the list continues to grow uh, each and every week. And so uh, hopefully one day again we will see you in church. Uh, But until that time, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. You have been listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith. Here on Radio Maria Canada.